Hello and welcome to another episode of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. This week's episode features Janine Capot-Crousset. She is the author of the award-winning short story collection, How to Leave Hialeah, and the novel, Make Your Home Among Strangers. I caught up with Janine during the Miami Book Fair, and she was so much fun. I think you're going to enjoy our talk. Well, first of all, welcome back to Miami. How does it feel to be home? It feels great. I mean, it's always um, astounding to me how quickly I get off the plane or get out of my car, and it feels like I never left. So it's always good to be home, although some it is like hotter than I remember. Um, which is still taking some getting used to. I was like, huh, I used to never notice this, but now I do. Well, your debut novel, Make Your Home Among Strangers, is a classic fish-out-of-water story. Your narrator, Lizette Ramirez, is the daughter of Cuban immigrants living in Miami. She applies to Rawlings, a prestigious private college in upstate New York, without telling her parents, and then she struggles a bit once she's accepted and she goes to school there. And as she becomes more acclimated to her time at school, then she begins to struggle when she comes home with her family. I've read that this novel came to you in a very unique way. Can you just share that story with us? Yeah, um, I was living in Los Angeles and I was working as a college access counselor for a really fantastic organization called One Voice. And we helped first generation college students from low income families make the leap into um, private colleges where they often were the only students of color in their class. And um, the organization was trying to address this really pronounced um, statistic which is that students who are the first in their families to go to college and coming from low-income families, they can they can get into these colleges, but the retention rate, the, the rate at which they graduate, um, is something like 23% of the students admitted will finish. Um, so it's a really high um, dropout rate at the college level. So part of what this organization did, their, their, their um, rate of people graduating was something like 97 or 96 percent was really high and how, how they did that was sort of like through this intense counseling and I was one of those counselors and we were having a meeting um, I think it was in March and all the students were getting their acceptance letters and this young woman who um, was really phenomenal just sort of said that she she just didn't think she could really do this even though she had been accepted to nine of the ten schools that she applied to you're talking about some of the best most selective schools in the country she just like you know it was classic sort of imposter syndrome she didn't know she didn't think it was really that she could really do it um and sort of seeing how much that everything she started saying just reminded me of myself 10 years before and i thought my god nothing has changed and i I like the whole like voice of the narrator sort of like hit me in that moment and I had been thinking a lot prior to that time because at that point it was the 10 year anniversary of um, Elian Gonzalez getting deported and I'd just been thinking about that a lot and the two sort of coalesced in that moment in this weird way that I couldn't figure out and that I knew was a big project for that reason so I excused myself to go to the bathroom and literally started writing on the bathroom like in the bathroom um, in a notebook that I had in that I always have with me in my purse um, and spent 10 minutes in there sort of sketching out the very beginnings of the voice of Lizette of, of the narrator of the novel and so that happened um, along with the fact that prior to that the students that I worked with including this young woman who said this um, were asking me for recommendations of things to read and what what books sort of functioned as roadmaps to the first generation college student experience that spoke directly to their um, their experience in some way. And I really couldn't think of any that were that, that really did it in the way that I thought they needed or would, wanted to read or that I had needed to read. 
So part of that was what went into writing the book of it being this roadmap for the first generation college student experience, which then actually maps on to like what it means, like the first of anything, first generation American, first generation, um, yeah, really anything. It became much more universal through the process of writing it. Um, so that was a, a cool thing to figure out and to learn as I wrote the book. Well, Lizette is such a great character. I mean, you just want to root for her, you know, from the very beginning. And you mentioned that you started getting that voice down. I mean, that first day, based on the you know, the conversation that you had with a student, was that, I guess, was that easy for you since you, you know, were working with this population? Or did it still take a little time to sort of craft, you know, who Lizette was going to be? Yeah, I, I didn't know her as a character just immediately. Um, and part of the pleasure of writing the novel was getting to know her as a person and being surprised by her decisions, seeing how different her decisions were from my own in a lot of ways. Um, I like to think, I mean, I look back at some of the writing I did to help me get to the novel, like the process writing, and there was a lot of me thinking, wow, this character is a lot more introspective and, and aware of herself at this age than I was, for sure, which makes for a great narrator, right, when they're really self-aware. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, it was sort of like, some, it, some parts of the voice came really, really clearly, but the person, the character behind that voice, I, you know, I'll, she's an invention of my imagination. She's a lot of me. I mean, there is a lot of like, not autobiograph autobiographically or factually, but um, I think I, a lot of times I was like writing the friend I wish I'd had in college. Like I wish, um, I wish I'd known someone like her in school. And I think the sad part is there probably was someone like that in, in the college I went to, but there weren't structures in place at the university level to help me find her. Um, I felt very isolated on my campus, even though I know there were other Latino students there. Um, it, it, it was a, it was not it was not easy to find each other um, or to find other first generation college students because that's not a label or a an identity category that's visible in any way. So yeah, I think a lot of times when I was writing Lizette, I was just thinking, man, I wish I had known this person. I and so to have created her as a friend. In that way, I, it, it felt like a, something I could give as a gift to these students, too, that I was working with. Like, oh, here, you you might not be able to find somebody on your campus, but I made you this fake friend, right? Not fake friend, but like this imaginary friend, which sounds a little weird, I guess, but that is kind of what I was thinking. You wrote a very touching essay in the New York Times about your experience when you were a student at Cornell. And I remember at the end, you know, say it was about um, not knowing uh, what you don't know. And I feel like that is, you know, we see Lizette and then the pitfalls of that in her character. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think her story is pretty typical of the challenges that first generation college students face? I think certain aspects of it, yes. I mean, I think what makes her particular story extraordinary and therefore worthy of a novel, right, this long piece of thing, is that it intertwines with this fictitious version of the Elian Gonzalez story, which means it's up against a larger national backdrop of a conversation about immigration, which is actually super relevant right now. And that was another element of, of the writing of the book where I realized not much has changed in our immigration policies. They're still broken. They're still full of holes. And, and it allows for these like crazy situations that we don't know what to do as a country. And it's very polarizing. So I wanted I don't have any answers to that, but I wanted to speak into the speak towards the problem. Right. Speak towards the issues. Um, and so that's what that is the part of her story that is not typical, but it's also what makes it or like why a novel needed to be written about it because those things are dovetailing there but I think most of the things that she realizes the things about like not knowing what office hours are not knowing what a work study job means or entails 
um, a lot of the microaggressions that she's experiencing on that campus, I think that's incredibly typical. Not those exact things, but I think one of the pleasures of this novel um, or the surprises as its writer that I've encountered is going places and people saying, oh my God, I totally, this part that I read where this girl says this thing to her, I totally had that happen to me. This is my story. And they'll tell me they're, you know, this, you know, these people who've read the book will tell me where they see themselves and then the story they proceed to tell me is nothing like what happened to Lizette but it is right it's not the facts are completely different but the emotional resonance is there so I think part of what's been wonderful for me is hearing people see themselves in the specificity like by rendering Lizette's story so specifically it became universal it became something where like I'm stirring in people the feelings that they had uh, you know that they can have about something else and they, they can see themselves in something that they've never experienced and then relate it to themselves, which I think is, you know, empathy. That's really important for us to, as human beings to be able to experience. And you mentioned the microaggressions, and they were just over the top when mm-hmm. Lizette is dealing with her roommate and her sweetmates, mm-hmm. or I excuse me, hallmates in this mm-hmm. case. They were really just over the top that she got from the people on her hall, like, you know, where are you from or where are you from, really? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a very interesting way to sort of deal with these issues of race and class, mm-hmm. primarily through the, the roommate and the people who she, she shared a hall with. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to use those people as a vehicle to talk about these issues? I, I think it was important. I know my goal as a, as a writer is to not try to answer a problem, um, but to to show a problem very clearly and so um, I recently did an interview where um, it was with a, a, a white man and he said he's like I'm identifying with your novel in a, in a way that I'm not very happy about and he it was actually okay but one of the things he said was like I know I've said those I said I've been the person who has said something like that to someone and I didn't realize it was a racist comment and I didn't mean it in that way but when I saw someone else doing it on the page I realized what I had done um, you know, and it's it, it's the small moments of like things like, oh, where are you from? And then she would say Miami. And they're like, oh, well, but where are you from from? And how that feels like an OK question to ask someone like I, I am recognizing you as other. Right. And so I or the idea of there's a moment where Jillian, the roommate, is talking to Lizette and she says, like, well, you're really beautiful because you have like the whole exotic thing. And again, like the, the term exotic is something being contextually dependent like Lizette looks like everybody else when she's in Miami but on her campus she stands out and that's being given this this label of exotic these are small things that happen all the time and they they happen daily and you're seeing the ramifications of these microaggressions and all the student movements happening all around the country right now um and in the Black Lives Matters movement, like this is this is real stuff that's happening, and it's it, it it's a, it's building, and it's going to continue to build until it's not tolerated anymore. And I'm like frankly excited for that. Um, it's also terrifying, but it's not coming out of nowhere. And I think that's what a lot of um, I, I think that's what a lot of white folks are feeling that they're just like, where's this coming from? It's like it's been going on. <laughs> um, and so it, the choice to tell to to portray microaggressions in this way for me was a way of saying sort of like see see how this is building and then when they have that giant fight in the tv lounge you know later on in the novel um the the three white girls are completely baffled by the magnitude of her response but the reader understands because they've been following Lizette for a a couple hundred pages and say of course this is happening of course this is the breaking point here we go but you know, those girls don't realize the things they've been perpetrating on her for pages and pages and pages. Um, 
so it was one of those again it was it was just to show how those reactions come about and how they're you know um they're a layering of these various different experiences these microaggressions over time that just wear on a soul well your title i thought was just perfect make your home among strangers where in the interviewing process did you come up with that title or i guess when during the process did you actually come up with the title oh that's a fantastic question um because it has like a real answer behind it the novel sold under the title magic city relic um which you know miami is a magic city and i thought of both lizette as a relic of the magic city but also of ariel hernandez who's a fictitious alien gonzalez as a relic of the magic city the idea of these things that are sort of like artifacts or leftovers and i thought it was a fine title part of me honestly always knew there was a better title out there but as like my capacity as a writer at the time i was like I, the whole book was done and if it was that was the only thing i was not going to hold that back a lot of times novels the titles of novels change when they go out on submission and they you know through the editorial process a new title will emerge so i thought if you know if there's a better title out there it'll come to me magic city relic it was actually even in draft form when i was working on it i was calling it send it send a dozen to get one through which is a terrible title um but because it needs so much explanation of why it's even relevant but it's the it was this it worked on a couple levels it's like when you send stuff to cuba you have to send like 12 of something to get one through and it's the same it's also trying to address that statistic that i mentioned earlier where you know for every like 10 or 12 students you send only one or two are going to make it through right so send a dozen to get one through but it's a terrible title i knew that i knew that wasn't going to be the title magic city relic came to me I like the way it sounded a lot, uh, like so sonically, like my poet ear really loved it. Um, it sold under that title and it actually kept that title almost until um, it was too late not to have that be the title. And actually when it came, uh, <laughs> it's kind of tr uh, touchy, um, it came really late in the process that the publisher wasn't happy with the title and wanted a better one. So I had two weeks um, and this sort of came up when they were, when it went to cover art with Magic City Relic and they were like, yeah, we don't know what to do with that. And not everybody knows Miami's the Magic City and not everybody, you know, there were all these reasons, but I hadn't, I hadn't been thinking that the title would have to change. So I got really freaked out and I think I have hundreds of titles that I just started free writing and generating. Um, and so I came to that title um, in a couple different ways, actually. I read Sonia Sotomayor's um, biography, My Beloved Life, because she's someone who I thought, she would really like this book. Like, I, she'll never read it or find it. But she, I think she'd really resonate with, Lizette's story would really resonate with her. I think she would really love it. And I, for fun, just read her. She, you know, she, she's a Supreme Court justice. I wanted to know more about her. So I read her autobiography. Um, and then actually also started listening to uh, Big Pun and his, his album 100% from back in the day. Um, and so I was listening to that. I put it up really loud and I closed my a room in my house and I was listening to this music really loud after having just finished this biography which I think is kind of funny this novel about a Cuban woman being influenced by two Puerto Ricans um, but just kind of shows it speaks to a pan Latino experience you know uh, so I was listening to that and I just started free writing which is a practice I do where you know you keep your hand moving the, any thought that comes to your mind you pin it down and it's supposed to help you tap into your subconscious and it's really cool I know poets do it a lot fiction writers sort of do it to clear the air so I, it's weird I have the notebook and the pages where I find the title Make Your Home Among Strangers. And it's in a series of free writing where I start writing other titles of things I like, um, other friends' titles, and then song lyrics. And so it's like, I'm looking at the pattern. I actually recently reread it, and I have this, I'm writing out the things that are coming to me are big pun lyrics that are playing in the background, and I'm just writing them down. And then I write the phrase, a century of fakers 
which is actually a Bell and Sebastian song title. And then I wrote Make Your Home Among Strangers. And then I only write two more things and I stopped. And I was like, I think my like subconsciously knew that was the title. And I read that phrase, Make Your Home Among Strangers. It was its own sentence in the free writing. And I was like, that has to be a title of something already because that's, if not, how did I not, that's always been the title, that's it. Um, and yeah, I went and Googled it and I looked up on Amazon. And it was not a title of anything. And I shot it off to the editor. I was like, this just came to me. And she was like, that's it, you found it. So it was really cool because it, it came to me through writing, right? Through this free writing thing. So that's how it came to me. And honestly, it was like, I had, they gave me two weeks to find a new title and I found that one like the day before it was due. So I was like, thank you, Jesus, or whatever. Like, it was amazing to have it. Um, sorry, that was kind of a long answer for that. No, that's great. I mean, that's really interesting yeah. because I always wonder, do people just, you know, they're writing in the middle of their novel and they think, oh, this will be a perfect title or do they finish and it's like, oh no, I need a title. Yeah, and I think too with this one, I had so many almost titles, and you know, it's almost called the like one working title. The other issue with having to wait till so late in the game and the publishing process to have a new title is it meant lots of people were involved, and that is a blessing and a curse because it's good to have people to sound a title off of. But when you have like your pub, like a publicist and a marketing manager and an agent and an editor and the author all trying to come to a title, it's hard to make everybody happy, and it's also easy to like. I mean, they're a lot tougher than I am, all those folks, because they do this more, you know. Um, but it also was tough to, like, you'd get titles, and I would just, like, one of the one of the titles that got floated was, like, Cultured. And I was like, oh, hell no. Like, I was just like, so I, like, you know, it, like, made me, you know, upset that that was considered an okay. And then one was, what about The Girl from Magic City? And I was like, that just sounds like a different book. That doesn't sound like the book I wrote. And also, wasn't the problem that we didn't know what the Magic City was? Like, how, you know, so you start, once because a conversation about a title, it can be tricky. Um, and so I had told them, I was like, give me just two weeks to figure it out. And if, you know, if I can't come up with it, then we'll work on it. But I, I just want to sort of not, oh, it was almost called, uh, or no, I mean, one title that was floated around was called The Reluctant Ambassadors. And then there was, an, which sounds like a totally different book too, like this like political thrill, thriller type book. Um, one that got close that my editor and I talked about actually like late at night it came to her while she was breastfeeding and she called me she's great um, and she she called me up and she was like what about you don't know you don't know and she thought it was from the shoot from that scene uh, um, when Lizette is getting the results from her committee hearing um, <coughs> and so we were like yeah and it was like you know we were it was like like one o'clock in the morning we're like yeah you don't know you don't know I like it it's got it can look like this and we can see a cover that we like we started and then like we slept on it and the next day we were like I don't know you know we started to fall less in love with it so yeah that whole process is really fascinating to me and um I think Magic City Relics the title is something somewhere for me but um I still sometimes will slip up and call the novel Magic City Relic because it was for you know for three years that's what its title was so here at Read More, we like to know about how reading has shaped your career as a writer. Do you remember the first thing you read that just really jazzed you, that just really resonated with you, that felt like, you know, nothing you'd ever read before? Yes, I do. Um, it's Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Are Watching God. And I read it in high school. And I still have the copy that we had, like, we were, give, you know, assigned in high school, the version of it. And it, I read it while holding a pink pen or a purple pen, depending on the session <laughs> that I was reading. And I just, like, underlining everything and putting, like, hearts and my ridiculous, embarrassing, now to me, handwriting um, of just being like, oh, I gotta find my tea cake, whatever. I'm, like, 16. I had no, but for some reason, the character of Janie just really resonated with me. I think, too, because she had really long hair and I had had you know up until recently very long hair and um 
Which is a silly reason. I, I mean, the reason I identified so much with Janie is because of the power of Zora Neale Hurston's writing and the sentences and just the voice um, of that of the narration and the character coming through so clearly to me. Um, but I remember reading that book. I also have to say, I think it was the first book I'd ever read by a woman of color. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, there's a place in writing for not like old dead white men, old dead straight white men, which... I mean, those works are valuable too, but this was the first time where I realized there was a place that this work was also valuable and not shouldn't be thought of as like othered. And then I remember learning that um, Zora Neale Hurston was from Florida and had like lived in Florida and was a Florida writer. And I just was, that was the first time where I thought maybe I can be a writer too. Like, but that book, I re actually recently read it. I read it this summer and um, I hadn't read it all the way through since high school. And I was like, now it's on, there's certain books I reread every year to sort of just recalibrate my soul and that's that's now one of them again because I read it this summer and I was like just how that book ends with Janie just in her overalls like coming back and she's like good on her own and I was like this is just such an important book for all women all, all people need to read it but like specifically women of color and sort of like how we're trained to um I don't know I feel like that book undoes a lot of the bad messages that we're getting from the world about our own value and it's a book that just I needed it at that time and um, that was the first book that I remember reading though and being like literature is for me you know <laughs> so lame but I loved I loved that feeling well it's interesting that you mentioned books that you read over and over again to sort of you know restore your soul yeah. uh, because I was gonna ask you next about you know if you could only read three books oh, no! for the rest of your life now you can't read any more new books you can only read books you've read in the past but you could read these three books though as much as you want which books would you choose i don't know that i can answer that like 17 titles floated in my head the minute you said that this is this sounds a little like purgatory or hell it's this place where i can only read three books um i'd have to i'd really have to think hard about this question one of i one i'll tell you the books that popped into my head immediately um, one is Eudora Welty's The Optimist Daughter, but it's so short that I'm like, wait, if I'm if I can only read, I want a longer book. Um, the second book that popped into my head was Edward P. Jones's Lost in the City, but then also his book, his novel The Known World. And so I'm like, can I get like a collector's edition that has them both together and count that as one book? Maybe. Okay, so I'm immediately looking for the loopholes to get more than one book in there. Um, William Maxwell's So Long See You Tomorrow is another favorite one that I reread every year. Um, but I don't, it's also very short and I don't know, see, I get political in it. I'm like, I think if I'm going to, if it's only three books for the rest of my life, they're all going to be by writers of color. I'm not bringing it, you know, like, I, like I'm going to make a statement in my choices that way. Um, but then there's also like Elena Viramontes' uh, Under the Feet of Jesus and then Zora Neale book. So I just don't want to go to this place that I can only read three books. I don't, is that an option? Can I be like, no, thank you. Um, that's, I think I named four, maybe five. That's a start, but. And this is going to wake me up in the middle of the night, this question. I'd be like, ah, oh, I can't believe I didn't say this. Um, yeah, maybe I would bring like the Norton anthology of short fiction so I get a ton of short stories in there. But there's so many in there that I, if I were making my own anthology, I'd have so many other writers in there too. Oh man, this is the hardest question I've been asked in a long time. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll, let me ask you about things that you haven't been able to read. Mm. Do you have anything that maybe you would say most people who consider themselves well-read, they've read, but you just can't read? Like, you mm. it's uh, you just can't get through it. It doesn't resonate with you. And I, and I know this can be kind of a difficult question. So if you want to talk about a reader, uh, excuse me, a writer who's no longer with us, that's fine, too. Oh, got it. Um, I... 
the writer that popped into my head, he's, he's a writer I admire in a lot of ways, but he's, um, I'm thinking specifically of, of one of his books, but um, David Foster Wallace and Infinite Jest, and that I, there's some way that that book feels like it's excluding me on every page in a way that I can't enter into. And, you know, everybody has an aesthetic. Everybody has what they like to read. Um, and there's just something about that novel that I, I know I was never intended to be its audience, that I can smell on it. And But it's one of those books that, like, every guy I dated in college had read and was like, oh, yeah, have you read Infinite Jest? I read the whole thing. You know, like, it was just, like, point of pride for these men. Um, and And so I was always made to feel, like, really inferior for not reading it or or comprehending it or being able to engage with it so i think more so than a writer it's this particular it was that particular book which was like all rage back then and i just couldn't um i I couldn't sink into it the same way other people were um yeah so that's the one that pops into my head i think his his nonfiction is phenomenal and and some of his essays are really wonderful but that infamous jess book man i was just like it's just sat on my shelf and mocked me i was like what i can't even look at you book (laughs) it's very weird well, are there any writers, you know, writing today that you think do not get the amount of attention that they deserve? You know, you feel like readers are sleeping on, maybe the media is sleeping on. Uh, does anybody come to mind? Uh, one of my former teachers comes to mind, or actually a couple of people that, that are connected to her, um, Elena Viramontes, who uh, she's not a prolific writer. She takes a long time between books because her sentences are perfect. Um, and every sentence is doing the work of like five sentences so her books are really dense um in a beautiful way and in a way that like even though her one of her novels um the under the feet of jesus is it's pretty short it takes forever to read it because you're just blown away by every sentence so you have to keep stopping to catch your breath um and i think she's someone that is it is cel- is celebrated but um because there's so much time between books it is she's not like part of a national conversation regularly the way um some other Latino writers are so she's someone that I always recommend and push um, the other writer that came to mind is uh, another writer his name is Manuel Munoz and he teaches out of Arizona now he's from um, where's he from he's from the Central Valley I think um, in California uh, he's a he's a phenomenal amazing writer and uh, writing about I mean just writing really like interesting like pushing boundaries of sort of identity but then also not like then just writing like whatever he wants to. And um, yeah, he's a writer that I, I just really admire his, his book, um, his story collection, Faith Healer of Olive Avenue would be one in this like weird hell where I can only read three books. His would be on the short list of like maybe this book, you know, I really want this one too. What are you working on right now? I'm working on um, a new novel, um, also set partly in Miami. I, you know, I think everything starts here for me in, in some ways and it, actually I don't even know that those parts will make it into the final book um, but it's in its very early stages which always makes me nervous to talk about it because it's a very fragile thing still and I've noticed sometimes the more I talk about it the less eager I am to get back to work on it so yeah it's this very ambitious and bizarre book that I am it might be the hardest thing I ever try to write in my life at least up to now and I'm really excited about all the ways in which it can fail and be a total disaster. (laughs) Um, So it's like this, I'm like, is my brain big enough to handle this book? And I just don't know the answer to that. And the answer might be no. And that's sort of why I'm pushing towards it. Um, So that feels really exciting. 
I feel like magic. Um, make your see. I almost called it Magic City Relic. Uh, make your home among strangers was this novel of my heart. Like it's this novel that it was like you know Cheryl Strayed and her column as Dear Sugar had um, this part about a novel being a second beating heart inside of you. And I remember reading that and going, Oh my God, that's absolutely what Make Your Home Among Strangers feels like to me. And I think this other, this new book I'm working on is just the heartbeat is still very faint, but it's it's going to do that same thing. But I felt like I was just writing this book that I, ha- that I had to write with Make Your Home Among Strangers. And so it's kind of, this new project is coming to me in a different way that's exciting, um, but also challenging. Just one more question for you, Janine. What are you reading right now? I'm reading a new story collection that just came out um, in October called How Winter Began by a writer named Joy Castro. Uh, she's a colleague of mine at the University of Nebraska where I just joined the faculty. And the story collection, it's um, it, about, about, I think it's 28 or 25 very short stories, um, some recurring narrators, um, just really sharp, gorgeous prose, um, really urgent and necessary stories. And I, um, I'm kind of tearing through it and forcing myself to slow down to appreciate the prose. But yeah, How Winter Began, it's out from the University of Nebraska Press um, by Joy Castro. Um, it's fantastic. It's really good. Janine Capot-Cousset, it's been a pleasure having you on the Read More podcast. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for having me. Go to our website, readmorepodcast.com, to find out how you can win a free signed copy of Janine's Make Your Home Among Strangers. You can also follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash readmorepodcast. Join us again in two weeks when our guest will be Jim Shepard. In the meantime, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more. <laughs>